Lord, we come to you this morning uh, freshly reminded of who you are, reminded of our weakness, our frailness. We are, like, we are like the grass or the flowers that sprout up but quickly wither away, but you are eternal. And you extend your grace to us. You give us life. You sustain us. You awaken our hearts to the reality of sin and our need for salvation. And then you pour out your grace and your love and your mercy upon us through your son and his work on the cross and by your spirit and his working in our lives. Lord, we are a people who need you. And we come to you today needy and expectant that you would speak to us through your word. As we look into your law today, I pray that you would shine your light on our hearts and reveal to us our need. Our need for confession and repentance and turning. Our need for change our need for a Savior. And as you shine the light of your law upon our hearts, I pray that you would also shine the light of your word upon your son, Jesus Christ, the sufficiency of his finished work, the goodness and the sufficiency of his sustaining grace, the presence and power of your spirit day by day to empower us to love you, to worship you, to obey you, to become like you. So Lord, we pray that just as you have held us fast, in your grace, that today you would hold us, that you would hold us close to your word, and that we would experience the working of your spirit as your word is preached today. Amen. Please open your Bibles this morning to Exodus chapter 20. We're going to be really finalizing not our series through Exodus, but we will be finalizing our study through the Ten Commandments. Today brings us to the tenth and final of the commandments that were spoken at Mount Sinai by the voice of God. So Exodus chapter 20, verse 17, the 10th commandment will be our, be our text today. Um, I have four children, and I was once a child, and when I was a kid, I loved uh, the stories of um, Tolkien, The Hobbit, and The Lord of the Rings, and my kids love those stories too. They love that imaginary world that Tolkien came up with. And all the stories that take place in that world. And while um, hobbits and elves and goblins and dragons and magical rings, those things aren't real. That's all made up and make-believe. I think those stories that Tolkien wrote have such traction even today because they highlight virtues and they highlight dangers that are very real. Even if the hobbits and the, the elves and the goblins are not. If you've read any of his books or even seen maybe the film adaptations of his work, The Hobbit, you will know that underneath this adventure, this legend of this group that's traveling, these dwarves that are returning to their kingdom under the mountain to defeat a dragon and recapture their kingdom, underneath that story is really a parable about the danger of greed and the destruction that's caused by a consuming desire for wealth. If you've read the books or seen the movie The Lord of the Rings, you'll know similarly that it shows the danger of a desire. Not desire for wealth, but The Lord of the Rings is about the desire for power. There's something about this ring that Bilbo discovers. It, dis it possesses this great power. It grants its wearer these special abilities to become invisible and wield great influence. And if that ring falls into the wrong hands, as you discover, as you read the story, it would lead to terrible disaster. But as the story progresses, you begin to realize that the danger is not really 
the ring. The danger is the desire for power. It's this craving to have the ring for oneself. That's what destroys characters. That's what drives the story, and that is what must ultimately be overcome at the end of Tolkien's stories. In a word, the real enemy in Tolkien's legends, whether it's The Hobbit or The Lord of the Rings, the real enemy is covetousness. It's this desire for more, whether it's more wealth or more power. It's this latent desire in all creatures. The most deadly danger is the one that resides in the heart. That is what can turn men into monsters. That is what can lead to death and war. That's what can threaten civilization itself. And that's what Tolkien's stories did such a great job of reminding us. Now, Tolkien might have been writing children's novels, but he was very well versed in human nature and biblical truth. He understood well this biblical truth that sin springs from the heart. It comes from the heart of man. It comes from our desires. And we must either learn to master our desires, or if we don't, we will be mastered by them. As I mentioned earlier, today brings us to the tenth and final commandment. You shall not covet. comes to us here in Exodus 20. And the book of Exodus here is no novel. Exodus is not a children's bedtime story. It is real history, and it reveals to us the moral will of God for his people. And it exposes for us the true nature of sin. And therefore, it's a needed word for us today, one that warns us, but also one that points us to something better. Exodus chapter 20, verse 17 says this, You shall not covet... Your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. This morning I'd like to look at three things in sort of unpacking this tenth commandment. First, we'll look at the meaning of this prohibition. What does it mean to covet? Second, we'll look at the reason for the prohibition. Why would God instruct us not to covet? And third, we'll look at what our response should be to this prohibition. So the meaning, the reason for it, and then the response to it. So number one, the meaning of the prohibition. Uh, This commandment, you shall not covet, you may have noticed this, but it's different than the other nine. All of those other nine commandments, they deal with things that people do, with things that are visible, things that are external actions. And this one deals with something that is internal, something that is not always visible. And that teaches us something very important, that God's law demands not just righteous actions. God's law requires righteous intentions. God cares not just about deeds. He cares about desires. Desire is a powerful thing. It's the explanatory reason behind every human behavior. Think about that. We do what we do because of what we want. Desire explains both fitness and fatness. It explains both marriage and divorce. It explains war and peace. Yes, we may have conflicting desires, but at the end of the day, we do what we do because of what we want. In today's society, desire is seen as an unquestionable guide to how one should live. 
if you talk about suppressing desires, people will say, well, that's harmful. You're not being true to yourself. If you try to interfere with someone else's desires, they'll say that that's not just harmful, it's actually hateful. But we should ask this question as those who read God's word and submit ourselves to it, are our human desires really to be trusted? It's a good question. God's word tells us here in the 10th commandment that there are some desires that are sinful. Desires can be sinful. A desire, according to the 10th commandment, to possess what rightfully belongs to another. This selfish desire for more at others' expense, that is sin. That's really what it means to covet. This commandment teaches us desires in and of themselves are not neutral but can be sinful. Philip Ryken comments on this commandment. He says, like everything else about us, our desires are corrupted by sin. We often want the wrong thing in the wrong way in the, at the wrong time and for the wrong reason. The sin of covetousness is a desire to possess what belongs to another, wanting something that is not ours. Notice the object of desire in this commandment. He says, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. And I don't think he's referring here specifically to the structure that people lived in. House here has the idea of household. It means really everything. Yes, it includes your your house, or in this day and age, this was a nomadic people that were traveling through the wilderness. They were living in tents. Every, every time the presence of God moved them from one place to another, as they're traveling between Egypt and, and the land of Canaan, they were moving. It was a transitional type structure. But yeah, you could covet your neighbor's tent, but house has the idea of household. It's more than just the dwelling place. It's a broad reference. And so he sort of gives a brief list to sort of represent a few suggestions of what could be included in that household. He says, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. Do not covet your neighbor's wife has a sense of not desiring her beauty, her charm, not to look at the spouse of another and to wish that you were married to that person. This can be physical attraction. It can be the emotional connection. It could perhaps even be the, the character and the talents and the abilities of your neighbor's spouse. In that day and age, consider in an agrarian society, her work ethic and her talents, her abilities, her health even, her strength, that would have brought great blessing to one's household. In that day and age, the ability to bear children would have had profound impact on your wealth and on the name and the reputation of your family to be able to pass down your family's name and inheritance if your spouse couldn't bear children or hadn't bore very many children, but your neighbor's wife had a whole bunch. Well, there's many reasons why you might covet your neighbor's wife. It says not to covet your neighbor's male and female servants. To have employees in that day was an indicator of wealth. It was a status symbol. And it would have made your life easier because you would have had more help to do more work, which would have been able to build more wealth for your children to pass down again that generational, uh, that generational wealth. To have male and female servants wasn't something that everybody had access to. And 
just to clarify once again, servants in, in this day and age was very different than the chattel slavery that existed here in the United States. So try not to let that confuse you here in, in terms of what uh, the Lord is speaking about here in the Ten Commandments. I think more in terms of being a business owner, having employees, people that are helping you get work done, and, and having an expanded ability to, to manufacture or to, to, to raise your cattle or to farm or whatever it may be. You're not supposed to be coveting those things that your neighbor possesses that you don't. It says not to covet your neighbor's ox or donkey. These would have been very important tools for, again, living in an agrarian society. They were indicators of wealth. In that day and age, there were no bank accounts. Your portfolio walked on all fours. I mean, the size of your herds was a very practical expression of your wealth. It's a little different in that day than today. I mean, there's people here in this room who may be very wealthy, and there's others who barely get by, and you may not be able to tell the difference. They might be sitting right next to each other today. But in that society, it was very easy to tell who was wealthy. Because you saw how big their herds were. You saw how many servants they had working for them. Everything was very visible to all. So oxes, donkeys, servants, wives, whatever it may be, they're not to covet what belongs to their neighbor's household. But this isn't an exhaustive list. And so just to sort of close off any loose ends, he wraps it up with this. Or anything that is your neighbor's. Anything. This is a catch-all. Don't be covetous towards their clothing, their social standing, their reputation, their looks, or their physical abilities. Don't covet the relationship that they have with their family. Don't even covet their spiritual maturity or their spiritual gifts. Don't covet the vacations they get to go on or their academic ability or anything. You can fill in the blank with anything. We're not to covet anything That belongs to another. Any selfish desire for something that belongs to someone else is condemned here in the 10th commandment as sin. Now, if it wasn't for this commandment, it might be easy for us to think that we could maybe keep the 10 commandments. To be sure, the other commandments do have implications about what's going on in the heart. And Jesus unpacks that for us in the New Testament. Jesus connects anger to murder and lust to adultery and shows that all the commandments really do speak to the heart. But let's just assume for a moment that you could sort of superficially read the Ten Commandments. You might get through the first nine and think, you know what? I don't worship any idols. I keep the Sabbath day. I haven't killed anybody. I don't steal. I've never testified falsely in a court of law. I honor my parents. I think I got this. You know what? I think I can keep the Ten Commandments. And then you get to this one. You get to the tenth. You may not worship other gods, but do you covet another's goods? All of us get to the Tenth Commandment and have to acknowledge that we are guilty. The Apostle Paul speaks of this commandment in Romans chapter 7, and he tells us that it's this commandment that taught him the true nature of sin. In Romans 7, verse 7, Paul writes, What shall we say then? That the law is sin? By no means. Saying the law is not bad, it's a good thing. But he explains himself, Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said You shall not covet. 
What's Paul saying there in Romans chapter 7? He says, I would not have known sin if it had not been for the law. Paul's not saying that he didn't realize there was something called sin. He's not saying that he didn't realize there's such a thing as right and wrong. In fact, earlier in the book of Romans, Paul explains that we all have a conscience. It's written, God's law, in a sense, is written on our hearts. We have this instinctive realization that there is such a thing as right and wrong. And that's why we feel guilty sometimes. But Paul says that it's the 10th commandment that taught him the true nature of sin. That all sin starts in the heart. That sin is present, not just in our deeds, but in our very desires. The 10th commandment was like a mirror that the Apostle Paul looked into. And when he first came to understand this commandment, it was at that moment that he realized the depth of depravity. He came to realize the severity of the infection that we all carry with us. That we are sinners. Sinful deeds can be stopped. You can go from here and never commit murder again. That's possible. That's doable. In fact, you could stop stealing. And if you couldn't stop stealing, we could stop you from stealing by locking you up, putting you in prison. Um, Even unbelievers can stop certain kinds of external sin. There are many unbelievers that have gone through programs like AA. They've been able to quit bad habits that are external in nature. But think about this. Who can change a sinful heart? Who can stop sinful desires? Only God can do that. Only God can change the heart. And that's the whole point. Paul is is teaching here in Romans that it's only once we understand our true sinfulness, that our sin is not just the things we do, it's the very desires that are within our heart. It's only then that we realize how desperately needy we are for a Savior. For a God who can change us on the inside, and transform our desires. Which is, by the way, the very promise of the gospel. Uh, Carrie was teaching this morning on the ministry of the Holy Spirit, and one of the things that the Old Testament holds out to us as a promise in Ezekiel 36 is that God promises his people he will give them a new heart and he'll pour out his spirit upon them. Listen, if you're not a Christian today and you came in here wanting to learn more about what it means to know God Perhaps you might be thinking, okay, the Ten Commandments, I should really go back and read those again. I need to be a better person. I need to stop doing bad things and start doing good things. Listen, the law, when you read it in its entirety, what it shows us is that what we need is something we are powerless to accomplish. What we need is a transformed heart. If you are far from God this morning and feeling guilty, what you need is not just to sort of You know, break some bad habits and build some new ones. What you need is a divine miracle. What you need is God's gracious intervention to change you on the inside, to make you a new person so that those desires start to change. And that's something you're powerless to do for yourself. That's a promise that comes to us in the gospel. The Apostle Paul writes elsewhere in the New Testament, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, that if anyone is in Christ, if they place their faith in Jesus, if they are united with him, and Paul says he is a new creation, the old things pass away. 
and everything about you becomes new. So listen, friend, if you're not a believer this morning, if you've not repented of sin and trusted in Christ, this is what you need. And I hope that as you hear me talking this morning about God's law, that it doesn't just sort of inspire you to try harder to be a better person. I hope it shows you that you need something only Jesus can give you. You need a changed heart. Paul learned that through studying the law, and that's what we ought to come away with as well, that as we understand what it means to covet, as we understand what it means to have sinful desires for more, something that's not ours, that we come to realize how depraved, how fallen, how sinful, how needy, how corrupted we really are. Because it's only once we get that that we'll look to Christ and understand Jesus is what I need. He's the only one who can save me from myself, from my sinfulness, so that I can be made new, made clean, have my sins forgiven. Otherwise, I'm destined for the wrath of God. So listen, friend, if you don't know Jesus today, that's what you need. And this commandment should be pointing you to him. For those of us who do know Christ, it's in reading texts like this that we're reminded of ourselves, who we really are, apart from Christ. And we're reminded to be thankful that our salvation doesn't depend on our performance, but on the Jesus who kept the law and then who died to pay the penalty, to shed his blood so we can be forgiven for all the ways that we fall short. So in understanding the meaning of this prohibition, we need to understand that what God requires, what his standard of righteousness is, is a standard that applies not just to our deeds, but even to our desires, to our desires. Covetousness, wrong desires, is sin. It's sin. So number two, what's the reason for this prohibition? Why would God draw the line here? And of all the different sins and all the different, all the different desires even that could have been listed here, why does covetousness make the top 10 list? Why is this sin included in the Ten Commandments? I want to give you three reasons. First of all, coveting is sin against God. Coveting is a crime against God. The Puritan pastor Thomas Watson wrote centuries ago that the root of covetousness is distrust of God's providence. The root of covetousness is distrust of God's providence. When you and I want something, when we crave something, long for something that belongs to someone else, what we're actually saying to God is, I don't trust you. You're not enough. This statement by this pastor who's long since gone to heaven really nails it. This really is the issue. When we covet, it reveals we have a problem with God. It means we don't trust that he will provide what we need. It means we don't trust that what he has provided already is enough. It means we don't trust that God's wisdom in determining what we have and what we go without, that his wisdom is than our wisdom. When we covet, it means we don't trust that the circumstances God has determined for us are ultimately for our good. When we covet, we don't trust God. Friends, this is unbelief. It's ingratitude, and it's a sin against God. Coveting is prohibited by the Ten Commandments because it's sin against God. Secondly, coveting is a sin not just against God. It's also a sin against neighbor. It's a sin against neighbor. Remember that the second half of the Ten Commandments, this second table of the law, can be summarized as what? Love your 
neighbor as yourself. That's sort of the category that we're in. But coveting is what happens when we set our love, our affections, our desires, the the, the longings of our heart, not on our neighbor's good, what would be best for them, but what we set our love, our affections, our desires on his goods, on something he has that we want. Coveting means that rather than rejoicing in the blessings that my neighbor enjoys, I resent him for it. Coveting means that rather than seeking to serve my neighbor, my heart desires, if it were be possible, to separate my neighbor from those things so that they could become mine. Coveting is the opposite of loving your neighbor as yourself. It's completely incompatible with love. Love desires the good of my neighbor. Desires for him to experience joy and blessing in his relationship with God, being rightly oriented towards him, and in receiving and enjoying God's grace and mercy. That's love. To desire what's best for my neighbor. If I want something he has, and I resent him for that, it's the opposite of loving my neighbor. So coveting is sin because it's a crime against God, because it fails to love neighbor. But there's a third reason I want to talk about why coveting is sin, and why it's prohibited here in the Ten Commandments. The third reason is this. The sin of covetousness leads to a host of other sins. It leads to all sorts of other problems. It's a bad root that bears very much bad fruit. Think about it this way. Rarely is coveting just a simple desire. It's often more than that. It's often immediately accompanied, isn't it, by planning and scheming to somehow get whatever it is that I'm wanting. This plotting then often leads to action, taking steps to do things to get whatever it is that I want so badly. So coveting never stays contained. Unchecked, it progresses. It leads to more. And it produces all sorts of other sins. In the New Testament, James warns us about this deadly progression. In James chapter 1, verse 14, James writes this, Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. There's a progression, a progression of desire that leads to sin, which leads to death. And James says, do not be deceived. Do not think that it doesn't work that way. Don't think that somehow your desires won't lead to sin. Don't think that somehow your sin won't lead to death. Do not be deceived. This progression is played out for us over and over again in the scriptures. Think about the very first sin. Think about what happened in Genesis chapter 3. The root sin of this covetous desire led to a violation of the first commandment. The first commandment is you shall have no other gods before me. What did Adam and Eve do? They took the fruit because they wanted to be gods for themselves. They wanted to be like God. And if you go back and read in Genesis 3, you'll see this progression. That Eve saw the fruit And it says she saw that it was desirable to make one wise. That root word for desirable is the same word that's listed in Exodus 20 for covetousness. 
She saw, she coveted, and so what did she do? She took it and she ate it. And she gave it to Adam and he made the same decision to eat. Genesis 3, we see covetous leads to rebellion against God. In Joshua chapter 6 and 7, we see a story of covetousness where a man named Achan is part of the, the, the military force that's conquering Jericho. They had been forbidden to take anything of the spoils. It was all supposed to be dedicated to the Lord and destroyed. But Achan saw some clothing and some, some silver, and so he took it. He saw it, he desired it, he took it. It's the same progression that we see in Genesis chapter 3. And it led him to do something that God had prohibited. In essence, he was stealing. Stealing. A violation of the eighth commandment. We see the same thing in 2 Samuel chapter 11. When David commits adultery with Bathsheba, he's up on the roof. And what does he do? He sees. He desires. He sees her beauty, that she's desirable. And so he takes her to himself. The same progression from Genesis, the same progression from Joshua, and it is ultimately these desires, these selfish desires in the heart, this covetousness, and it leads David to violate the seventh commandment. You shall not commit adultery. We see the same progression in 1 Kings chapter 21. A wicked king Ahab sees a vineyard. It belongs to a man named Naboth. Ahab desires this vineyard for himself, but Naboth won't give it to him. And so he takes it. He sees, he desires, and he takes. And in taking, he violates two commandments, both the ninth commandment and the sixth commandment. He bears false witness against Naboth, falsely accuses him of blasphemy, and then has him put to death. So you have false witness and murder, both committed by Ahab. Because he saw, he coveted, and he took. This is the progression This kind of sin in the heart leads to a violation of all of the Ten Commandments. And we can add to this list. We can add to these stories in the Old Testament our own stories. Every one of us. We too have seen. And we've wanted. And so we've taken. All of us. So listen. If you are serious about winning the war against sin... If you're serious about growing in holiness, then what that means, Christian, is that you must fight against sin at the level of desire. If you fight against sin at the level of action, it's too late. You're you're already too far downstream to have consistent success. If you want to have victory in putting sin to death, not falling into the failure and the error of all of these stories from Scripture and all of the errors and the failures that we have in our own lives, then we have to fight sin at the level of the heart. Listen, if you tolerate covetousness or other sinful desires, it will lead to failure. James says, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings death. It leads to judgment. So I believe the reason why this sin is included in the Ten Commandments is because it's a sin against God, it's a sin against neighbor, and it leads to a host of other sins. You can see the profound wisdom of God in including this in his law so that his people would understand the true nature of sin, but also the true danger of sin. All the problems that it causes. Then third, this morning, I want to talk about our response to this commandment. 
This would be application. What are we supposed to do with this? We understand what covetousness is. It's desiring something, craving something that is not ours. It's this inordinate desire, this lust for more, especially when it belongs to another person. We've understood the problem with it, that it's a sin against God, it's a sin against neighbor, and it leads to a million other sins. So what do we do with that? What is our response? Well, before we talk about this, first you have to ask yourself a question. You have to ask yourself, are you guilty of covetousness? And the reason you need to ask that is is this. If you listen to a sermon like this, if you read scripture like this, and you think this is somebody else's problem, but it's not mine, then you won't benefit from any of this. So we need to allow God's word to speak to our hearts. We need to look into the mirror, as it were, and recognize who we really are. And you may be saying, you know, I don't know if I've ever thought about that before. I've never really examined myself or, or thought about you know, my desires to see if there's covetousness, covetousness there. Here's a few diagnostic questions you can ask yourself to discover whether or not perhaps this is something that maybe is present in your life. Ask yourself this question. If I only had blank, I would be happy. Think about that. What is it? That if you only had that one thing, then you would be happy. If somebody gave you $50,000 today, what would you spend it on? Some of you would put it in the bank because what you want more than anything in the world is financial security. You wish you had the stability and the independence that other people have. Some of you guys would go spend it to get the latest hunting gear or a different car or to pay off your house or maybe to be a down payment on the house you always wish you had. Or maybe you would redecorate the house you do live in. Maybe you'd get the latest phone or a video game console. I don't know. You fill in the blank. But what would you say, if I only had blank, I would be happy? I was thinking about this this morning. What do our online habits say about what we want most? What is it that I'm always researching, shopping for, looking for deals on? reading 572,000 Amazon reviews, you know? And maybe I'm not even going to buy it, but I just want to know. If I could buy it, is this the one I would get, you know? It says something about what it is that we want, what it is we're longing for. Ask yourself this, what is it that you think about the most? What is it that you talk about the most? What is it that occupies your heart and your mind? Could it reveal that there's something that you are coveting? What is it that you complain about the most? That shows you what you wish you had. Even if you're complaining about something that's happened to you, it shows a lack of contentment that I don't think God has put me in the right situation and I wish I had somebody else's circumstances. What is it that you're chasing after? What is it that you're pursuing? What are your goals? These are the things that reveal the deepest desires of our heart. And how you answer these questions will reveal the true object of your desires. If your desires are things you don't have, things other people have that you want, then the sin of covetousness is something that you need to deal with today. So if that describes you, if you say, you know what, at the beginning of this sermon, I would have said, oh, I don't think coveting is something I struggle with, but maybe now you're starting to see I actually do have a problem with this sin. So what should you do? What should you do? Well, very simply, we're supposed to confess it. 
1 John 1.9 tells us that if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God gives grace to humble sinners who confess their sin before him. So acknowledge your sin before God and confess it to him. Confession is the first step of really an important part of the Christian life, something that's called repentance. Repentance is something that is supposed to mark us as those who have responded rightly to Christ and his call upon our life. We are those who repent of sin and believe in Jesus. So confession is step one in repentance. But if you really want to repent, that requires not just confessing sin, but turning from it, turning away from it, growing, going in a different direction. So here's some things you can do as you seek to grow, as you seek to repent of this sin and grow in holiness. And, and, and it starts with just changing the way we think, changing the way we think. We need to see the sin of covetousness as a serious threat. We need to see it as a major problem, not a minor issue. One of your takeaways from a sermon like this needs to be that you think differently. That you think differently about this kind of sin. That you think differently about the desires that rule your heart. Don't underestimate the deadliness of this sin. Listen, it can be fatal. It can be fatal in a spiritual sense. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 13, 22. He's talking about different types of soil. There's a farmer who's thrown out all of this seed and it lands on different types of dirt. Some of it sprouts up, some of it doesn't, and there's reasons why it doesn't sprout up in certain places. And Jesus explains to his disciples, he says, What was sown among the thorns? This is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. Listen, unchecked, a desire for the things of the world can actually choke out the truth of the gospel. It is possible to love the things in the world more than you love Christ, even if you go to church, even if you put money in the offering, even if you help and serve here at the church, even if you were baptized as a kid, even if you can answer all the questions. If you love the things in the world more than you love Christ, that says something about the type of soil that's in your heart. And if the gospel itself is choked out over time by your desire for the things in the world, that is spiritually deadly. It means there is no genuine faith in you. And it means that on the last day, when you stand before the judge of all the earth, he will say, depart from me, I never knew you. Don't underestimate the deadliness of this sin. Take it seriously. The Apostle Paul wrote this in 2 Timothy 4.10 about someone that used to be one of his partners in ministry. He says that Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me. Deserted me. Somebody who used to be involved in the ministry with Paul. Somebody who used to travel with him as he preached the gospel and planted churches. Turned away from Paul, from the ministry of the gospel, and from faith in Christ itself. Why? Because he was in love with this present world. He loved the world. Ephesians 5 verse 5 says, You may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. 
If your life is dominated by sexual sin, if your life is dominated by impurity, if your life is given over to these things and given over to covetousness, which Paul diagnoses as really being idolatry, and Paul says you have no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. You are not going to heaven. That says something about who you really are. That you are not God's child. You're walking as his enemy. There needs to be right thinking about this sin. If your life is dominated by this sin, then you need to examine yourself to be whether or not, whether or not you truly are a Christian. Whether or not you've actually been born again. And Christian, if you have been born again, but you struggle with this sin, this is how serious it is. It's the kind of sin that damns people to hell. So don't play around with it. Don't tolerate it. It may be something that nobody here can see, but it is serious, deadly serious, and we need to think about it that way. So if you want to grow, if you want to deal with this sin, first of all, it needs to change the way you think. See the sin of covetousness as a serious threat, a major problem, not just a minor issue. That's why it's there in the Ten Commandments. It's a big deal. But secondly, here's a practical response for us as we read this text. Secondly, we need to strive for contentment. Strive for contentment. Like all of the commandments, the negative prohibition implies, on the flip side, a positive command. And the opposite of covetousness, which we're warned against, is contentment. Contentment. That is what God desires to see in us, is contentment. What does it mean to be content? How can we grow in contentment? Well, it should be fairly straightforward, but let's review To be content means that we trust in the character and promises of God. Remember, Watson told us that the root of covetousness is distrust in God's providence. So if you and I are going to be content with our circumstances, content with those things that we have, content when we're aware of the things we don't have that maybe we'd like to have, if we're going to be content, it means we need to trust God. It means we need to trust him. Hebrews 13 verse 5 says, Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. The author of Hebrews ties together contentment with knowing that God is with you. If God is with me, if I trust him, if I know that he's good, if I I know that he's faithful, that's what helps me to be content with what I have. So trust in the character and promises of God. That will enable you to become the kind of person who's not dominated by covetousness, but instead is able to be content. In addition to this, we need to seek not only to trust God, but to be grateful for what he has given. Again, this is also a matter of faith. You and I can be grateful when we believe that God is wise and God is good and he has given me exactly what I need. And I can be thankful for that. God is not stingy. He does not withhold from his children what it is that they really need. And I need to believe that. If there's something that I really needed, then God would have given it to me. That's a matter of faith. So trust God. Be grateful for what he has given. In addition to that, to grow in contentment, we need to really embrace the wisdom that comes to us from God's word. Here's what I mean by that. Wisdom means we need to see the world for what it really is. And we need to place value on what actually matters. 
Scripture helps us to see things for what they really are. This is wisdom. Ecclesiastes 5 verse 10 says, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity, meaning it's emptiness, it's a waste. You can get everything that's out there in the world that you think will make you happy, and it actually won't. It actually won't. So don't be a fool and think that all that stuff will really do it for you, because it can't. It can't. That's biblical wisdom. 1 John 2.17 reminds us that the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. 2 Corinthians 4.18 tells us that we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. That needs to be our mindset. That needs to be the lens we look through, that everything here in this world is temporary. The things that matter, the things that last forever, those things are often unseen. They're unseen. So let's live for that. Jesus says in Luke 12, 15 to his disciples, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Listen, that's fact. That is truth revealed from the mouth of the Son of God himself. And you can be a fool and say, I don't think Jesus actually gets it. Because I think my life does consist in the abundance of my possessions. Or... You can be wise and say, yes, Lord, what you say is true, and I'm going to think and act accordingly. What a shame it would be for us to waste our lives chasing things, driven by a longing for stuff that will only slip through our fingers. Jesus says, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moss and rust corrupts, where thieves break in and steal. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust cannot corrupt, where thieves don't break through and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If our heart is connected to the treasure of the world, we're living for the world. If our heart is is fixated ultimately on the glory of heaven and our eternal reward, on the things that matter, the invisible things, that's where our treasure is. That's what we will live for. This is wisdom. This is wisdom. And here's the good news. If contentment and covetousness is a struggle for you, the Bible tells us that contentment can actually be learned. It can be learned. Not to steal Stephen's thunder from preaching through Philippians. He probably won't be here for a couple months, so it's okay. The Apostle Paul says in Philippians that he learned how to be content. He learned the nature of sin from the law, And he learned by God's gracious working in his life what it means to be content. He says in Philippians 4 verse 11, Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him. Who strengthens me? Paul says, I've learned the secret to being content. And here's the secret I can be content when I rely on Christ. I can do this. I can go without or I can have plenty. And I've learned to be content in either station. 
because Christ is the one who strengthens me. This contentment is something that is ultimately possible for all of us if we will rest in Christ and rely on his spirit. So strive for contentment. Strive for contentment. And then a third response, third response for us, as we seek to trust God and strive for contentment, the third is I want to encourage you this morning to strive for rightly directed desires. Rightly directed desires. We've talked a lot about desire this morning, but listen, desire itself is not wrong. It's not wrong to have desires, even to have strong desires. In fact, Scripture commands not less desire, but more desire. But it urges us to desire the right things and to pursue those right things in the right way, in faith and submission to Christ. So the goal for us, if we want to obey this commandment, is not just to kill the wrong desires, but to then replace those wrong desires with better ones, with better ones. Biblically, we are to desire the word. We're to desire the truth of God's word. Psalm 19 encourages us by telling us that God's law, his precepts, his judgments, that they are more to be desired than gold, even much fine gold, that they are sweeter than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Wealth and pleasure, whatever it is that's out there that you think will make you happy, the word has something better for us. And we are to desire it that way. Jesus says in Matthew 5, blessed is the one, happy is the one who hungers and thirsts for righteousness. Jesus doesn't say kill all your desires and be a Buddhist monk who sits there all day saying nothing affects me, I have no desire. No, no that's not Christian. What's Christian is to have deep, strong hunger and longing and desire for righteousness. Jesus encourages that and offers blessing for it. We're to desire to know Christ. Paul says he counts everything in his life as trash, as rubbish, so that he may know Christ. To know him is everything. To desire Christ, a relationship with him, closeness with him to become like him. These are things we are to desire, to strongly desire more than we desire the things of the world. And scripture often encourages us to look forward to and to long for the glory that is to come. In a word, heaven. Listen to Philippians 3, 17. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. Speaking about their desires. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Our desires are to be directed to Christ, longing for his return, recognizing that we are citizens of a kingdom that is to come. Colossians 3.1 says, If you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. Our desires are to be rightly oriented towards Christ, towards his return, towards the glory that will be revealed on that day. If I could quote from Thomas Watson one more time, he wrote that the covetous man hunts for the world, but only wishes for heaven. 
He puts effort and labor and focus into pursuing and getting the things in the world. But he only dedicates a few wishful thoughts for the things of heaven. It ought to be the opposite. Yes, there's things in the world we would like to have. And that's not wrong. But our longing, our desire, our pursuit ought to be the things of God. Chuck Swindoll once shared a poem, and I'll read it here as we close. A poem in one of his sermons talking about contentment. And it really captures the foolishness and emptiness of the covetous heart. The poem says this, It was spring, but it was summer I wanted. The warm days and the great outdoors. It was summer, but it was fall I wanted. The colorful leaves and the cool, dry air. It was fall, but it was winter I wanted. The beautiful snow and the joy of the holiday season. It was winter, but it was spring I wanted. The warmth and the blossoming of nature. I was a child, but it was adulthood I wanted. The freedom and the respect. I was 20, but it was 30 I wanted to be mature and sophisticated. I was middle-aged, but it was 20 I wanted the youth and the free spirit. I was retired, but it was middle age I wanted, the presence of mind without limitations. My life was over, but I never got what I wanted. That's what a life looks like that's dominated by covetous desires. But listen, that doesn't have to be your story. It doesn't have to be yours. If you will allow God to shine the light of his law in your heart this morning... If you will allow the power of his spirit to lead you towards this place of contentment with what God has assigned for you. If you will resolve to set your desires today on better things. Then a life of joy awaits you. A joy that's not dependent on what you own. A joy that's not tethered to your circumstances. A joy that is tethered to Christ and his unchanging and infinite goodness. A joy that looks beyond the trifling, the, the, the passing trifles of this world. A joy that's anchored in eternity. That can be yours. So will you listen? Will you receive? And will you obey? I pray that we will. I pray that we will. Heavenly Father, as we look into your law, it's impossible for us not to be convicted because it shows us our sin. It shows us sinful desires idolatrous desires and it shows us that so many of the sinful things we do are really a symptom of the problems in our heart lord we are powerless to change ourselves this morning but we look to you as the god of creation who is able to make us new creatures in christ lord for any who don't know you today for any who are dominated still by a heart that is enslaved to sin for any today here who are ruled by their selfish desires. I pray that they would recognize they are far from you and they need to be saved. I pray that you would break their will, that they would humble themselves before you today and kneel at the foot of the cross and believe in the promise of grace and forgiveness that only comes through the shed blood of Jesus. That they would surrender to you as Lord, giving you not just their future, but they're present, submitting not just their external behavior, but submitting to you even the thoughts and intentions and desire of the heart. Lord, for those of us who do know you, I pray that you would sanctify us today, 
that you would help us to make war against the sinful desires that still remain in our flesh, that we would be humbly submitted to you. Help us to trust you. Help us to be thankful for what you've provided. Help us to rightly aim our desires at the things that you tell us to desire. And Lord, we ask you to produce in us gratitude and faith, contentment and joy. Lord, help us to walk in your way. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.